Yeah, how do you follow that up? Is that what he said? Was that? Yeah. The opening act uh, puts this one to shame, I think. <laughs> According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in the book of Hebrews once again. Join me there in Hebrews chapter 1. We're at the end of the chapter. We're still dealing, though, with verses 13 and 14, and um, didn't quite get as far with it last week as I thought we might get, but um, there's just so much here, the depth and the meat and the content that's here, and I want to make sure we're solid on it. Uh, the whole chapter, well, really since the prologue, but this, this chapter and the next are centered on angels, and we can't lose sight of that. If we lose sight of that, I think we then um, get trapped into a bad uh, place in chapter 2, and I don't, wanna, I don't want us to go there, even though all the commentaries go there and other people take you there. I want to make sure that we keep it in context the way that we need to keep it, and, and we'll be demonstrating that verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph as we work our way through. But we will notice that in the prologue, the great prologue of 1 through 4, we've read a bunch of times already, but notice it ends, having become as much better than the angels. The stress in this prologue is on the angels as far as how it concludes. And then what it's followed up with in verses 5 and following, to which of the angels did he ever say? And so we have a prologue that is so deep and all of the content of, you know, God after he spoke long ago and these, in the last days he's spoken to us in his son. And we've got such powerful truth in this chapter. He's the radiance of the Father's glory. He's the creator of the world. He upholds all things by the word of his power. Everything is centered in the glory of Jesus Christ, and it starts with the name that he has inherited that is much better than the angels. And we have to, we, we can't lose sight of that. We've got to stay, we've got to keep our minds in angelic circles, in, in the context where we don't lose that angelic emphasis in chapter one or in chapter two. All right? And so we see it in verse 5, to which of the angels did he ever say? And we have uh, uh, passages from the Old Testament, mostly from Psalms, that are quoted in these verses. And uh, uh, angels are to worship in verse 6. Angels are winds and fire in verse 7. Okay? This thing we call Harvey. Was that meteorological or was that an angel? Okay? Well, we we don't know, but God knows, and we may find out when we get there. Same thing with Irma. Irma's on the way, all right? And Irma could be stronger than Harvey. And uh, so, praying about that. Anyway, more angels. And um, this, this context is not lost. In, in verse 13, the language is used to restate this, to which of the angels has he ever said? Right, And so the author of Hebrews here, Luke or whoever, the author of Hebrews here is using that language to keep the train of thought on the track. <laughs> we all should have the same train of thought. We all should be going down that same angelic track throughout chapter 1 and throughout chapter 2. So to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? And the answer is yes, even if a third of them have rebelled from that purpose and are currently in revolt. Following after Satan, by design, they all were intended to be ministering spirits, sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. Now, 
I'm going to open in prayer here in a moment, but just keeping that angel thing in mind, when we cross into chapter 2, ask yourself, do we have reason now to jump tracks? Do we have reason now? Is there a change of context? Is there a change of tone? Is there a change of emphasis? Uh, because, you know, there's a chapter break there. Well, that wasn't in the original manuscript, so is it, a, is it an improper chapter break? Should we keep it in the same context? And uh, it does say, for this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. For this reason. So everything we're studying there in the end of chapter 1 carries into chapter 2 as a reason for our activity. And then again, angels are mentioned in verse 2. And angels are mentioned in verse 5. For he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. Is there any confusion about what he's speaking about here? He's talking about the world to come. And he's talking about how Christ, because of his victory in first advent, is now uniquely qualified to bring the angels and humans and everybody into the new heavens and the new earth. The world to come. He did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking, but has testified somewhere saying, <laughs> do you ever quote a Bible verse and can't remember where that Bible verse was? Okay. Well, you're not alone. The author of Hebrews did the same thing right there. Uh, just as one has testified somewhere, Psalm 8, saying, what is man that you remember him or the son of man that you were concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. All right. So just as you see this, where have we abandoned the angelic context in between chapter 1 and chapter 2? The answer is we haven't. And um, likewise, even down to the end of chapter 2, we will talk about flesh and blood. That's not angels, that's us. And why did Jesus become flesh and blood? Why didn't the angel of the Lord go to the cross? Angel of the Lord did a lot of things in the Old Testament. Couldn't the angel of the Lord just shown up and gone to the cross? No. Since the children that share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. And it's fun. We're going to have some fun with this because children is the language of humanity. Not angels. There's no angel children. Those little cherub things you see in artwork are goofy. Okay? Alright. But there's the, the fear of death and there's the power of death. And through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. How many pathetic humans are so scared to die that they're enslaved. It controls their thinking. It controls their actions. It drives so much. And then it says in verse 16, for assuredly he does not give help to angels. Notice that. We have never left the angelic context all the way down here to the end of chapter 2. He doesn't give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. He had to be made like his brethren in all things that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. Anyway, the point being that it was the God-man who went to the cross, not the angel of the Lord. All right? And we have two full chapters of angelity, and then in chapter 3 we're introduced to Moses and uh, his faithfulness. Notice that. That's how chapter 3 starts off. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, now that we've had two full chapters of heaven and angels and all that, Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed uh, him as Moses also was in all his house. 
Now we start in chapter 3, we start the contrast between Mosaic law and the church age, between Old Testament and New Testament, between Moses and Jesus, not before chapter 3. Okay? And that's what I'm trying to take the time. We do our homework well in chapter 1, we do our homework well in chapter 2, we won't get confused. We won't take things that are still future and force them back into chapter 2 and create a false doctrine out of the word spoken through angels in Hebrews 2 2. All right? So just be aware of that as we, uh, as we go through. Okay. Long introduction, but we still ought to pray. Let's uh, bow our heads and ask for the Father's blessing. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do humble ourselves before you, totally unworthy and yet totally made worthy. Father, in Christ, we have all of His worthiness, His righteousness, His merit, His worthiness. Father, uh, we thank You for the blessings we have to assemble today, studying to show ourselves approved, workmen needing not to be ashamed. And we call upon Your faithfulness, Father, as we rightly divide the word of truth, open the eyes of our understanding. Today will be a manifestation of Your faithfulness, Your Son's faithfulness, and the Holy Spirit's faithfulness as, uh, as we are edified by the living and abiding Word of God. So, Father, shape our study today. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so as we back up to which of the angels, picking up where we left off a week ago, Hebrews 1.13, to which of the angels has he ever said? Okay, rhetorical question, answer it yourself, none, zero. There never was an angel that God the Father said, thou art worthy, all right, to break the seals, to take the scroll, to sit at my right hand, to rule this world. All right? No angel is worthy, even and especially the boastful ones that, that think they can be worthy. And uh, the five I wills of Satan in Isaiah 14 that I mentioned repeatedly. But uh, part of that was a, uh, a dissatisfaction with his throne. And let me just real quickly, can you cite something 20 times and never turn there? I can if I just assume you know it. But in Isaiah 14 in this taunt, this is a taunt and they're commanded to take up this taunt in verse 4 that uh, in that day, when, when Israel enters the millennium, they get to sing this taunt. This is their, uh, the song that they will taunt Satan with as uh, he's bound and thrown in the abyss. So, it will be in that day when the Lord gives you rest from your pain and turmoil and harsh service in which you have been enslaved, that you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon and say how the oppressor has ceased and how fury has ceased. And we have a song that begins there in verse 4. And we usually don't pay attention to the early verses, and we really should, um, because uh, Sheol is excited to see Satan when he arrives. And it is a time of rest for the earth. And uh, there's a lot of uh, things in verses 5 through 11 that are fun to read, including maggots are spread out as your bed beneath you, and worms are your covering. How fun is that? Okay, They don't sell that at Bed Bath & Beyond. They don't have the... <laughs> The, um, you know, be, wouldn't that be great? Walk in there and just ask, where do you keep your maggots? You know, <laughs> and show them this verse. I'm just looking for a bed covering. Well, but see, now here's this is the taunt. Okay, it's designed to be provoking, provocative language. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. And that's normally where the reading picks up is verse 12 of Isaiah 14. And this is Hallel ben Shachar in the Hebrew. This is, one of, this is Satan's name prior to his, 
his or title for him prior to his fall. The Latin called him Lucifer in the, in the Latin Vulgate. But how you have fallen from heaven, O star, the morning sun, the dawn, you've been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, now here's the five I wills of Satan. And notice the seating, the, the grumbling over the seating assignments. I will ascend to heaven. And there were angels that were terrestrial and angels that were celestial. And uh, Satan was assigned a place on the original angelic earth and he didn't like it. I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. He had a throne but didn't like where it was placed. I will sit on the mount of the assembly. There's a divine council for Yahweh. There's a divine council that consists of the highest ranking angels, the ones that themselves are called Elohim. They're called gods. We don't have any problem with that. It's called the divine council on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. All right? And I draw a connection there, and a lot of pastors draw a connection there, in the recesses of the north, and signifying the north at the right hand. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. All right? And of course, he's 0 for 5. <laughs> it's a terrible batting average. Uh, he, he made five prophecies and z- zero, okay? Remember, you can stone a false prophet for one false prophecy, and he's, he's 0 for 5. And, but yet notice in this vow, not content with the seating, not content with where his throne was, and lusting after that seat at the Father's right hand. To which of the angels did the Father say? To which of the angels did the Father say? Sit in my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. You know, really, the question itself can't have a, uh, an angel give an answer. Because which angels have enemies? <laughs> right? You know, the, the enemies, none of them had enemies until, until Satan rebelled, and then a third of the angels went with them, and now all of a sudden, now there are enemies. Now there's a conflict. All right? And so now who would have enemies that would be seated at the Father's right hand? Well, it would have to be a good angel if it's an angel at all. But we're going to find out very clearly it's not an angel at all. It's, it's God the Son Himself. It's the Father's right-hand messenger. is the Father's right-hand agent in this regard. So this is what we started with a week ago. And I want to tie together some of the details we didn't have the opportunity to get to. I call this the sit at my right-hand psalm. It comes from Psalm 110, by the way. Uh, the psalm that gets quoted more than any other psalm in, in the book of Hebrews, verse 1 especially, and in verse 4 especially. Because in verse 4, it's the same psalm. We've got three verses on the king, and then we have three verses on the priest. Thou art a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. See, And we'll look at that here in a moment. So this is David's great sit at my right hand psalm, and it identifies many principles of the Messiah and his footstool future. Okay? His footstool future. It is not the present. This church age where you and I live, we operate in the church age, and this is not a footstool present for Jesus Christ. His session in the right hand of the Father, His head of the church, is while He is waiting. He is sitting until. The Father is creating, the, the, is making, forming uh, the, the footstool, but the footstool is not here yet. His feet are not on it yet. And we want to be clear on that. So uh, join me in Psalm 110. Let's take a look at that. Psalm 110. It's a powerful passage. Our Savior taught from this passage. 
We'll see that here shortly. It's uh, seven verses long, not six. I misspoke. Uh, But verses one through three center on the throne and the kingship. And then starting in verse four, we have the priest. And that's that's staggering because under Mosaic law, the throne belonged to Judah. The priesthood belonged to Levi, two separate tribes, right? Two separate tribes. And that becomes a major point of Hebrews that uh, in his earthly requirements, he wouldn't be a priest at all. So Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, sit on my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power, in in holy array from the womb of the dawn, for your youth are to you as the dew. All right, so there's verses 1 through 3. And uh, with some depth of things that are beyond what we're going to tackle today. I'm not prepared to teach uh, womb of the dawn, all right? Uh, But within the respects to sitting and enemies, clearly there's enemies in verse 1 that have to be made a footstool, and then there's enemies in verse 2 that he's going to rule in the midst of. When he's done sitting, he can start ruling, right? We've got to be clear on that. Too much confusion today from crowds of people that say he's ruling right now and the right hand of God is the throne of David and we're in the kingdom now, we're reigning now, we've got to have the live the victorious life now, we're reigning now and he is waiting until the Father makes that footstool and then he will go forth and then he will reign and the scepter will rule from Zion, all right? Not until Jesus Christ is seated on the throne of David is this kingdom on earth. It's still waiting for it to come. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're not there yet. It is not yet on this earth. Okay? And uh, <laughs> uh, you'll have folks tell you otherwise. They'll tell you that, oh, he's reigning now. He's on the throne now. And uh, it's, it's bad theology. And it has consequences. That's the sad part. Not only are they wrong, but the, the, the consequences are how it affects their, uh, their Christian walk day by day. So, um, sit until. Sit until. This emphasizes the work of God the Father until such time that Christ will no longer sit. If I tell you, sit there until, well then guess what? When, the, when that criteria is done, you can stop sitting there, right? Sit there until. Then you can come out of the corner when you're ready to apologize to your sister or whatever. I, just, I confessed that last week too, all right? And if you're as stubborn as a sinner as I was, am, uh, you can sit there for a long, long time. I can, I'll show them. I'm going to starve to death right here and they're going to be really sad when I'm dead and gone because uh, I sat there until I was ready to apologize to my sister. The language of until means when the condition is met, you're done doing what you were told to done until, okay? Then you can go forth and rule. And you can take the scepter and stretch that scepter forth from Zion. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion. And remember, the Lord said to my Lord, we've got two Lords here. We've got God the Father and God the Son. And the Lord, that's God the Father, will stretch forth your, God the Son, strong scepter from Zion, telling God the Son, rule in the midst of your enemies. And so Jesus Christ accepts the strong scepter called other places the rod of iron. And he goes forth and he rules from Zion in a very difficult reign. 
Not a reign of blessing and joy, but a reign of difficulty that he faithfully executes. Not with pleasure, but in faithful obedience to the Father. And that's important to see as well. So, the current church age, you can think of it as the time of the Son's session. He's seated in heaven as the, at the right hand of the Father, and we're seated at the right hand of Christ. At the session uh, as head of the church, Jesus is seated in session, and the Father is footstool-making. Now there's a contrasting passage in 1 Corinthians 15 where it has reign until. Reign until. And I don't want you to confuse those passages. Because there's sit until, after which you start reigning, and there's reign until, after which He delivers up the kingdom to the Father that God may be all in all. And I think far too many people conflate sit until with reign until. And that's unfortunate. So 1 Corinthians 15, 24-27, I'm not going to turn back there again this morning, but I encourage you to renew those notes, review that, review those passages. It speaks to the end, the omega moment, when the dispensation of the fullness of time is concluded and we cross into eternity future. Um, it's a powerful text, alright? And so the time of the Father subjecting all things under Christ's feet. Not the church age, not the tribulation, not the millennium, Okay? Some things get subjected, but not everything. Not the all things. The all things that have to be subjected are all things in the heavens and on the earth. That's the dispensation of the fullness of time in Ephesians 1.10. And it can't happen on this earth. This earth will always have something not subjected to Christ. Okay? Until all things are made new. Um, and if someone argues with you and says, no, no, he's seated right now, things are already subjected to him, then thank them for their opinion, but tell them it contradicts Scripture, where Hebrews 2.8 very specifically says, we do not yet see all things subjected to him. It has not yet happened. Um, in addition to Psalm 110, we also have Psalm 8. And in Psalm 8, which really gets more of a, of a quotation and more of a development in chapter 2, so just consider this a sneak peek. But in Hebrews 2, we'll see the Psalm 8 quotations, how he was made for a little while lower than the angels. Um, Psalm 8, verses 3 and following, "...when I consider your heavens the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, the galaxies, the universe." That was just finger work. Okay, That was easy for him. That, was, that wasn't arm work, it wasn't shoulder work, just finger work compared to redemption and other things that required the strong arm. Okay? Uh, what is man that you take thought of him? Or, and the son of man that you care for him? Why is it that this physical universe is anthropocentric? Why is it that planet earth is man-centered? Humanity and then the son of man. Yet you have made him a little lower. Now your, your translation there probably says you have made him a little lower than God, right? Because the Hebrew says you have made him a little lower than Elohim. And Elohim is often translated God. But it could also be translated God's plural. In other words, the angels. And that's how Hebrews translates it when Hebrews quotes this passage. You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. And you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. So the emphasis in Psalm 8 is all things. The emphasis in Psalm 110 is enemies. All right, both are true. 
enemies are included in the all things. Obviously, the all things is a, is a larger picture. The millennium fulfills the enemy's emphasis. But guess what? In the fullness of times, there are no more enemies. Okay? In the fullness of time, once the great white throne is complete, where are all his enemies? They're in the lake of fire for all eternity. They are cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. That is sealed off, never to be opened again because there will never be another unbeliever. There will never be another sin. So Psalm 110 stresses enemies while Psalm 8 stresses all things. The millennium fulfills the enemy's emphasis while the fullness of times fulfills the all things aspect. Okay? We want to be clear on that as well. We've got Ephesians 1.10, we've got 1 Corinthians 15, 27 and 28, some passages there that uh, did we look at last week? I think I ran out of time. But the the dispensation of the fullness of time is the summing up of all things in Christ. Things in the heavens and things on the earth. There's not a hint, not a whiff, not a clue, not a, there's no more under the earth by the time we get to the new heavens and the new earth. There's no more sea and there's no more hell. There's no more, it's sealed off, okay? Gone. The all things that are summed up in Christ are in the heavens and on the earth. Let's see, I thought I had one more. There we go. All right. When Christ no longer sits in heaven, and oh, that it were today, all right? There's coming a day when the Father will say, go get your bride, all right? And he's going to come get us, and then the rest of eschatology starts unfolding after that. But when Christ no longer sits in heaven, he will go forth to take the scepter and rule from Zion. That's what, when we go from verse 1 to verse 2, we see this here. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion. He has to rule from Zion. He's not going to rule from the Father's right hand. He's not going to rule from heaven. He's going to rule in the midst of his enemies on earth in Jerusalem surrounded by enemies. There are no enemies surrounding him in heaven. This hard rule will take place in the midst of his enemies while the Jewish nation exercises their stewardship function as free will offerings. As free will offerings. And that's what it says in verse 3. Your people will volunteer freely. Right? The language there is the language of a free will offering. Your people will be free will offerings. Even as Jesus was a free will offering, Jesus went to the cross as a sacrifice. Now all the Jewish people become free will offerings, voluntarily serving as unto the Lord. Well, the Gentiles then <laughs> gradually chafe and chafe and rebel and plot and scheme and ultimately march for the downfall of Jesus Christ. That's what they demand. It's a hard rule that will take place in the midst of his enemies. And that's, I'm going to take some time this morning to explain this. Um, using this as a warm-up because it's part of my topic at the Schaefer Conference next spring. Um, I want to really make sure that we're clear on this. So are we familiar with Psalm 2? Psalm 2, the nation's rage, the kings of the earth. They've got this plot, they've got this scheme, and God's just laughing at them. Okay? Let's see about the difficult reign that will be Jesus Christ's rule of the millennium. See, I had, to, I had to overcome a lot. From my childhood, I had the idea that the millennium was just marvelous and wonderful and peace and, and the lion will lie down with the lamb. True. Uh, but, okay, 
Yes, there will be animal benefits. There will be uh, environmental benefits. But not everything is as peachy, as rosy, as uh, it's not all Skittles and unicorns, right? It's, 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 there's conflict. There's a lot of, of uh, rebellion against Jesus Christ. And the more that we see, I think, the more that we realize that it's not, the millennium cannot be the Father's blessing to His Son. It's the warm-up for the real blessing, which is the new heavens and the new earth. So in Psalm 2, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples, Gentiles, devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and rulers take counsel together. You get a whole total you know, United Nations agreement on this. It probably won't exist by then, but that's okay. The kings of the earth are in, in agreement here against the Lord and against His Messiah. All right? So same context for the Lord said to my Lord, we got God the Father, we got Jesus Christ. And they hate both of them. Saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. The Gentile nations start to hate being ruled by the Jewish nation in Jerusalem. All right? Now, not at first, of course. At first, it's all believers to start the millennium. But how long does it take for that to, uh, to change? You know, one generation gets born and they don't all get saved. And even the generation that passes through the tribulation, how long does it take before they start grumbling? Like the Exodus generation. How they passed through the Red Sea on dry ground and the waters came crashing down. That very same group of people started grumbling. Can you imagine? They get rescued in Armageddon. They get brought into the Millennial Kingdom. They're separated sheep and goats. The Millennium starts. Year one, I guess, is okay. Year two, when does the grumbling start? How long does it take before a Gentile nation, first one, then two, then more, start to realize, wait a minute, we don't like this. So they take their stand. And it's against Yahweh and His Mashiach, against the Lord and His Christ, saying, let us tear their fetters apart, cast away their cords from us, but he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. God the Father is just laughing. Every conspiracy they come up with, He's way ahead of them. Then He will speak to them in His anger and terrify them in His fury. But as for me, I have installed my King upon Zion, my holy mountain. Same language, same. He's no longer seated at the Father's right hand. He goes forth from Zion. The scepter is going to be stretched forth from Zion. He's reigning in the midst of His enemies and God the Father in heaven is laughing laughing at the Gentile rebellion against Jesus Christ. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten thee. Big emphasis on this in the book of Hebrews. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. Well, wait a minute. I thought he was the son of David. I thought he was the king of, uh, of the Davidic throne. He's going to rule over Israel. There's more. Okay, In the millennium he is the son of David on the throne of David, and he rules over Israel. And there are boundaries. In the great river Egypt, the river uh, Euphrates, there are boundaries. On the other side of those boundaries are Gentiles, Gentile nations, Gentile kings. The, the crowd of rebels we're looking at here. But those nations as well will be given to Jesus Christ. So we see the context here? He's in Zion, he's ruling, he has a throne, but he's going to get a bigger throne. Ask of me, 
I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, the very ends of the earth as your possession. So we say in the millennium he rules as the son of David on the throne of David in the new heavens and new earth. The son of man rules over all humanity. Okay? It's a big deal. In the meantime, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. The millennial kingdom will be rough. It will require discipline. It will require harsh measures. Any army that invades and serves as an occupying army deals with unpleasant rebels and insurgency. Never forget the tribulation is warfare and the millennial kingdom is an occupying government. Jesus Christ is the conqueror of this fallen world. And the rule there is, is a whole lot different than the rule in peace and glory of over the new heavens and new earth. So, take therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son. It's a good passage that defends the deity and humanity of Jesus Christ right there. God is only the only one worthy of worship. Worship the Son, that He not become angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. The final Gog-Magog revolt when Satan is released from the abyss after the thousand years and he gathers, uh, what does it say, one or two malcontents here and there? No, it says the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. There is a huge march on Jerusalem after Satan is released. But he who sits in the heavens laughs and he's going to descend, he's going to hit him with fire from heaven and there we go. How about Psalm 18.44? Let me give you a few more of these. Psalm 18.44. This is a good follow-up to last hour when we talk about pretenses. You know, a pretense is an excuse. A pretense is a reason that sounds good but it's not the real reason. And uh, all these phonies. In uh, Psalm 18, 44, you know, David is thankful for his victories. He won. He had these battles. And he won. This is great. And uh, when you read some of these earlier verses and he describes his victories and how he shattered them and he wins, it's kind of like when Jesus wins at Armageddon. All right. They fell under my feet. They weren't able to rise. You've girded me with strength for battle. Made my enemies turn their backs to me and I destroyed those who hated me. They cried for help, but there was none to save, even to the Lord, but He didn't answer them. I beat them fine as the dust before the wind. I emptied them out as mire of the streets. So that's pretty cool. Okay? Then what? <clears throat> you have delivered me from the contentions of the people. You have placed me as head of the nations. A people whom I have not known serve me. But notice... As soon as they hear, they obey me. Well, what kind of obedience? Foreigners, and this is where the translation is a bit of an issue. Um, the verb is a verb of deceit. It's a verb of lying. Foreigners, they submit to me, but it's a feigned obedience. Foreigners give a feigned obedience. A feigned obedience. It's like forcing you to say you're sorry to your little sister. So you say it, but you don't mean it. All right. <clears throat> By the way, I'll give you her email and her phone number if you want to call her anytime. She'll verify all this. And then she'll tell you that I love her now and she loves me now. We're, we're good. It just 
Took a while. Okay. So they come trembling. Foreigners fade away and come trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives and blessed be. So there's, there's other things here, but notice they submit because they have to, but they're not happy about it. They're not happy about it at all. Same thing in chapter 66 in verse 3. Psalm 66 in verse 3. <clears throat> Shout joyfully to God all the earth, sing the glory of His name, make His praise glorious. Now see, a lot of these things are written out of David's experience and so they're historical, but they're also messianic, prophetically looking forward to Jesus. We get that, we're great with that. A lot of Psalms are that way. And if all of the earth is being... Well, David didn't conquer the whole planet. And so we're, we're good with taking David's experience and bringing it forward to a millennial application. Sing the glory of His name, make His praise glorious. Say to God, how awesome are your works because of the greatness of your power, your enemies will give feigned obedience to you. Great translation. Why didn't they do that in chapter 18? All right, same verb, same context, same, same deal. But better rendered in Psalm 66. Because of the greatness of your power, your enemies will give feigned obedience to you. Remember Psalm 110, sit at my right hand, uh, go and reign in the midst of your enemies while they fake it while they submit and hate every minute of it. <clears throat> the, all the earth will worship you and will sing praises to you. They will sing praises to your name. Some will mean it. Okay? <laughs> all the earth will be singing, but some will be doing the feigned obedience. So, Psalm 66.3. How about Psalm 81.15? Psalm 81.15. <clears throat> those who hate the Lord would pretend obedience to Him and their time of punishment would be forever. Remember? He who sits in the heavens laughs. He's going to put an end to it. He's going to let them all gather and march under Satan's banner at the Gog Magog rebellion and then whoosh, there comes the fire. And, uh, and He doesn't stop with just them either, by the way. Heavens and earth, the whole universe is going to be consumed with, with fire. And the great white throne judgment and then new heavens and new earth. And it's a glorious thing. Those who hate the Lord would pretend obedience to Him and the time of their punishment would be forever. So study these Psalms. Study the, the Davidic his, history, but study the Messianic prophecy and study and ask yourself, what kind of a difficult reign is this going to be? How much fun is this going to be for Jesus to rule like this? Zechariah 14. Zechariah 14, verses 16 and 17. Another text. And I think it goes well with the feigned obedience text. I think it goes well with the uh, conspiracy text. The kings of the earth devise a vain thing and they whisper against me. Well, what kind of plot are they coming up with here? What are they, what are they agreeing to do? It's curious, all right? Zechariah 14, it will come about, this is after the tribulation, after Armageddon, after the victories, after the, the kingdom is established. Verse 16, it will come about that any who are left of all the Gentiles or nations that went up against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. 
So every September, October, every, every fall when this festival comes about, the Feast of Booths, Gentiles will be required to go, you know, any Gentile king, president, prime minister, whatever, the leader of a Gentile nation has to go to Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths. And if they don't, there's consequences. It will be that whichever of the families does not, and I like that language, that's, that's key. It doesn't say if any don't, it says the ones who don't. Whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem. So there will be some, and I believe there will be more and more and more as the millennium progresses. They think they're, they're getting away with it in their conspiracy. I think some are going and just faking it. But they go so they can keep their water turned on. All right. Because that's the consequence here. Whichever the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. God shuts off their water, right? You ever have a landlord turn off the water in your apartment? Or the electricity? Or, you know, here's God turning off the water for the whole country. No rain. Because your king did not go worship Jesus Christ in Jerusalem. And there's consequences. If the family of Egypt, for example, does not go up or enter, then no rain will fall on them. It will be the plague with which the Lord smites the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. There are plagues in the millennium. There's the execution of murderers in the millennium, execution of sinners in the millennium. Did I put I did not put that on here. I should have. Okay. I'll find that and add it to the slide. Um, another psalm that talks about morning by morning Jesus wakes up and executes the wicked. Okay? You and I might wake up and start a pot of coffee brewing or whatever. Um, whatever you do for your morning ritual. Jesus, by the way, if you're an unbeliever in the millennium, do not stay in Jerusalem overnight. If you're in Jerusalem, if you're an unbeliever in Jerusalem, go home before the sun sets. Get out of town before the sun goes down, right? The, uh, the point being, if an unbeliever is found within Jerusalem as the sun rises, Jesus Christ will execute them. What kind of millennial reign is that? <laughs> okay? It's not all, you know, rosy and peachy and happy and all that. All right. So if the family of Egypt does not go up or enter, no rain will fall on them. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. Now I can't prove it, but it seems to me it, if they're creating a conspiracy amongst them, if the kings are plotting together, as per Psalm 2, perhaps part of their conspiracy involves this, provides some uh, black market uh, water provision, okay? Tell you what, I'm going to keep going up to Jerusalem, I'll keep my water turned on, we'll keep our rain going here, and we'll take care of you in the, in the coming year. Because there will be people, there will be kings that will be willing to be in flagrant rebellion, and there will be other kings that won't be willing to be in flagrant rebellion, they're just going to keep it uh, under the cover with the feigned obedience we saw in, uh, in all those psalms. All right. And while the Gentiles are doing this, <laughs> the Jews, whoever would have imagined, you know, whoever would have imagined that um, the Jews would be the faithful nation, <laughs> you know, in the Old Testament, the Jews are constantly going apostate. They're constantly following the bad example of the Gentiles that have them surrounded. 
And they're, the Jews, you know, they, they, they're supposed to be the covenant nation. They're supposed to be the, the witness. They, they're supposed to preach and, and fulfill their stewardship responsibilities. But more often than not, unless you had a good King David or a good King Hezekiah or Josiah or something like that, for the most part, the Jews were just as wicked as the Gentiles. But in the millennium, they're going to be faithful. They're going to be faithful the whole time. That's amazing. Because He's going to put their law in their heart. That new covenant they're under is going to equip them to fulfill what they couldn't fulfill in the Mosaic covenant. By the way, on my way back to Jeremiah, I thought I could spot it and I did. It's Psalm 101 and verse 8. Okay? Psalm 101 and verse 8. So write that in in your notes. Every morning I will... This is... uh, in describing his reign, my eyes shall be upon the faithful of the land that they may dwell with me. He who walks in a blameless way is the one who will minister to me. He'll only have believers and true disciples in his administration. He who practices deceit shall not dwell in my house. He who speaks falsehood shall not maintain his position before me. There won't be any unbelievers in the administration of Jesus Christ, and there won't be any carnal believers. If you're not living in the Word of God and and operating on a truth basis, He doesn't want you in His government. So he who speaks falsehood shall not maintain his position before me. Every morning I will destroy all the wicked of the land so as to cut off from the city of the Lord all those who do iniquity. Psalm 101 and verse 8. Just in case you thought I was making that up a little bit ago. Okay? The millennial kingdom is rough. Not pleasant. But he's faithful. He's just as faithful in second advent as he was in first advent. He's going to wield that rod perfectly just like he did everything perfectly in his first advent. But this millennial kingdom is going to be a kingdom of conflict. So while the Gentiles are doing that, the Jewish nation will be exercising their stewardship function as free will offerings. And so um, Jeremiah 24, 7, Jeremiah 31, they get the new covenant. Jeremiah 24, 7. Verses 4 through 7 that deal with this. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Like these good figs I will regard as... Remember, he saw baskets of figs. The good figs were very good. The bad figs were very bad. And so God says, All right, here's what this means. Like the good figs, so I will regard as good the captives of Judah, whom I have sent out of this place into the land of the Chaldeans. <laughs> the ones that went into Babylonian captivity were the good figs. They were the ones God was rescuing and saving. He preserved a remnant like Daniel and Ezekiel by taking them off to Babylon. The bad figs he left in Jerusalem to get massacred. All right. I will set my eyes on them for good and will bring them again to this land. I will build them up and not overthrow them. I will plant them and not pluck them up. I will give them a heart to know me, for I am the Lord, and they will be my people, and I will be their God, for they will return to me with their whole heart. That, my friends, is second advent. That's not Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah, or any other Old Testament returning. They did not return with their whole heart when they came back in the Old Testament. They returned and took forever to rebuild the temple and were all wrapped up in secular things. All right, so in the millennium, they will return with their whole heart. And he will give them a new heart. Jeremiah 31, 33 and 34. The new covenant. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, 
when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. Okay? Not with the church and not now. It's with the house of Judah, the house of Israel. Days are coming. It's after the tribulation. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was husband of them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it. I will be their God. They shall be my people. They're not going to have external stone tablets and external expectations to keep an external law. They're going to have the law written within them, the internalizing of kingdom law, and a heart to obey. They broke the Mosaic covenant. They can't break the new covenant. All the, It's unconditional, all the expectations on God's side anyway, and the new heart to fulfill what they never could do under Mosaic law. Isn't that beautiful? They will not teach again. Look at verse 34 here. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. Every Jewish person in the millennial kingdom will be a teacher to the Gentiles. And even the least of them, the little Jewish kids, will have the doctrine and the heart to minister to the Gentiles in the millennial kingdom. It's the greatest phase of Israel's stewardship. They, all, they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. Declare, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. All right. So there's Jeremiah 31. How about Zechariah 8? Should have grabbed that earlier. I was just in Zechariah. One Zechariah chapter 8. Oh, well, wouldn't have made sense. Let's do it now, though. Zechariah 8. Twenty through twenty-three. Thus says the Lord of hosts, it will yet be that peoples, those are Gentiles, will come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one will go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord, to seek the Lord of hosts. I will go also. Where does Jerusalem rank today on top global vacation spots? It's down there. Okay, it's way down there, right? I think, I think it's still Paris is number one, and then maybe New York, and there's, there's a long list of these. Jerusalem doesn't make the top 10, top 20, okay? It's down there. But a day is coming when why would you go anywhere else? That's where Jesus is. That's where the truth is. The Lamb of God that saved us is sitting there ruling. Let's go there. Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I will go also. So many peoples and mighty nations will come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, 10 men from all the nations will grasp the garment of a Jew saying, let us go with you for we have heard that God is with you. Isn't that beautiful? The great demand that they're going to be in. 10 to 1, teach us Bible doctrine. <laughs> teach us truth the lord is with you and the blessings for the first time what they should have been doing all along ever since abraham right the jewish people should have been the stewards and the witnesses and the bible teachers and instead they were just imitating the gentiles most of the time but not in the millennial kingdom of jesus christ the enemies will be faking it for the jews it'll be real the jews will have a heart to serve the lord and i love that that's, uh, 
a neat thing to look forward to. All right. The last thing I want to say in verse, uh, as we get back here to Hebrews 1.13, this great sit-at-my-right-hand psalm, it identifies many principles of the Messiah and His footstool future, what we would think of as the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. But also, observe very wonderfully, Jesus used this psalm as the proof text of His Messiahship. In fact, this Psalm 110 was His go-to passage when He wanted to shut the Pharisees up. <laughs> All right? I didn't have an answer for Him after that. And so in Matthew 22, we read this, and uh, it's kind of neat. Jesus would not have been a very good postmodern, um, light and fluffy type of pastor today. I think a lot of pulpit committees would not consider Jesus. Right? I mean, he flipped over tables, he was he yelled a lot, made whips. Called people names, you brood of vipers. All right. Matthew 22, verses 42 through 45. The um, context for this, as uh, all these people are coming to him with these different things. Uh, Verse 41, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. Okay, They've been asking him all these questions, and usually it was for phony reasons, wanting to accuse him of something. So then he turns it around and says, all right, my turn, i got a question. What do you think about the Christ? You know anything about Messiah? What do you think of the Christ? Whose son is he? And imagine they're kind of insulted at first because, you know, well, duh, he's the son of David. Everybody knows that. If you'd have gone to one of our schools, you would have known that. What are you asking us that for? Okay. Whose son is he? Well, they said to him, the son of David. Well, then, tell me this. How then does David, in the Spirit, call him Lord? Clearly, he was in the Spirit because it's inspired Scripture. It's in the Psalms. How does David call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord. Well, wait a minute now. If the Messiah is the son of David, why does David call him my Lord? Of course, we get that, right? Because we're New Testament believers. We know the Old Testament, the New Testament. We know that he preexisted as God the Son. The Word became flesh. He was born. He was a descendant of David's, but he was God forefather of david forefather of abraham forefather you know of adam right god very god so how does david in the spirit call him lord saying the lord said to my lord sit at my right hand until i make your enemies uh, put your enemies beneath your feet i love the fact that he was preaching this in front of a whole bunch of those enemies (laughs) okay those pharisees all right so he uses psalm 110 and he says what do you think about the christ and they don't have an answer they can't answer. They, either they have to agree with him or who wants to do that? Let's just not say anything. So if David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. They've been hitting him with question after question after question and he put an end to all of that by saying, okay, i got one question for you guys. And then it was game over. They were done. They said, okay. And they didn't want to answer because to answer... It's self-evident that the Scripture speaks to what this is dealing with here, and they could either acknowledge it and bow before their Christ, or they could just not say anything about it and go home and pout about it 
and find a way to, to kill him. And that's what they did. Anyway, this is, uh, this is marvelous. One of the things we had Wednesday, we were talking about, uh, there was a question with respect to David the king and David the prince. And some of the pro- prophecies in Ezekiel, especially, that speak about the King David and Prince David. Why, why, how, is he both king and prince? How does that work? And then there are multiple princes. There's plural princes saying, well, how does that work? Jesus is the king of kings and lord of lords, so we accept that Jesus is the greater son of David and he is the king of David that's spoken there. Well, who's Prince David then? If, if Jesus is King David, who's Prince David in, in the millennial kingdom? And, and the conclusion is, if you missed it, uh, the conclusion is Prince David is the resurrected historical King David, right? That David, uh, is, is, we know he's resurrected, we know he's a believer, we know he's in the kingdom. What's he going to do for a thousand years while Jesus is serving as king? You know, what is a, what is a king? You know, we don't have retired kings because they die and their son becomes king. But, you know, I guess you can have a co-regency with a semi-retired king. But anyway, generally speaking, the prince becomes the king when the king dies and, and the king and the prince becomes the king. Okay? But what happens when you've got a king on the throne and a former king comes back to life? <laughs> do the British laws of succession cover for that if... You know, what happens if, uh, you know, a great king from England's past returns to life and goes to Queen Elizabeth and says, excuse me, yeah, that's my throne, okay? Well, in the millennial kingdom, Jesus is sitting on the throne of David, but David's also there, and Solomon's there, and Rehoboam is there, and every believing king of Judah is there. Jehoshaphat's there, Hezekiah, all the believing kings. That's why I believe we have plural princes that serve as administrators in, and to serve as assistants to the reign of Christ throughout the 12 tribes, throughout the, throughout the world in the millennial kingdom. So how fun is that going to be? Look, look forward to that too. That's going to be kind of neat to see. Alright, which gets us now to verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? You know the first shall be last and these first beings, these angels, the mighty beings that they are their eternal destiny is to serve us. And two-thirds of them are okay with that. <laughs> but Satan and, and the third of the angels, they want no part of that. They are in open rebellion still against the Christ, against the plan of God. And so I'm out of time, but we'll have to come back. We'll talk about the role of angels. We'll talk about what the role has been up till now and how that role will change. How that role will change. Well, you, need a, you have a guardian angel today, right? Well, you need a guardian angel once you have a resurrection body. Okay? A lot of the, a lot of the angels are going to be unemployed um, after the church age. They're going to be unemployed. More of them will be unemployed after the tribulation. More of them will be unemployed after the millennium. There will still remain a final cadre that will have employment in the new heavens and the new earth. And they are the highest of the angels that will have employment in the new heavens and the new earth because they are observed, they're the watchers. They're the ones that observe. They're the ones that bear witness to the Father's demonstrations. And um, until the Father's done demonstrating, they still have a role. But when the demonstrations are complete, when a thousand generations of those who love Jesus Christ are born and never sin, when the demonstration is complete, then all those angels also will be out of a job. And authorities, rulers, and powers will be abolished. Okay? But that's not until 
a thousand generations after the new heavens and new earth are, be, are begun. So stay tuned. Next week we'll uh, tackle a few more things like that. So Lord willing and rapture pending. Father, I thank you for your truth. I thank you for the blessings of your word. I thank you, Father, for the privilege that we have to study to show ourselves approved. I thank you that we have the book of Hebrews that we can put side by side with Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 and Psalm 8 and Psalm 45. Father, uh, what resources that uh, Old Testament saints never had. And uh, yet they had all those Psalms, but they didn't have the, the New Testament revelation to put them all together in the way that we have. And so I thank you for that. It's humbling, Father. It's amazing what you've given us. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for giving us all things that come with salvation, Father. Uh, the, the great inheritance that we have. And so far, all we've got is the, the down payment. We just have the, the, the earnest money, the, the little security deposit. The rest of it is still on the way. And uh, so, Father, I thank you for that as well. It's a joy, Father, to, uh, to think of our salvation. We're about to sing a song about our salvation. And, Father, it's, uh, it's a thrill. It's a joy. I don't want everyone to lose it. Um, I, I don't, don't want anyone here to ever lose the joy of that day when we came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, when we passed out of death into life. And Father, if there's anyone here today or anyone listening on the MP3 that uh, does not know your Son as their Lord and Savior, I pray that today would be the day that they stop trusting in themselves or stop trusting in any kind of religion or lies that are out there and trust in the only object of faith, the only object you have designated as valid for our acceptance of your grace gift, and that is the object of Jesus Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. So Father, we thank you for such a simple gospel available to all. And I thank you, Father, for the salvation that we all can testify to. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, our new hymn, if you uh, 